7. She believed in God, but she believed also a little in Voltaire. Emile Gaborio, The Widow La Rouge, 1873. Religious philosophy crops up often in our conversations, and Babette declares the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius as her true messiah. Here was a man who said the acquisition of fame and wealth during our lives is futile, she exclaims. We are born, we struggle for a time, then evaporate into dust. The moral path is to live as well as we can during these precious few moments and be kind to one another. And furthermore, he advised that despite people who are vexing and troublesome, one should always recognize sparks of divinity in everyone. Jesus never said anything so beautiful. You attend mass nearly every day. Could I come along sometime? I ask. My professor's face clouds. No. In fact, I would prefer you remained ignorant of which church or churches I attend at all. This seems a final verdict, but her reluctance is abandoned one Sunday morning. <laughs> you know, Ross, she chuckles. I adore the Catholics, but sometimes can't resist teasing them. I belong to a church that is steeped in so much history, but among people who are almost entirely ignorant of it. I heard mass just now at St. Agatha's, and afterwards mingled with the old biddies as I like to do. One wondered who St. Agatha was, and I happily reminded her, oh, that is the one martyred by having her tits cut off. Well, she didn't appreciate my description at all, though perhaps I could have phrased myself better. But it's true! That's what happened! And now she is patron saint of breast cancer! Sometimes, on travels, I bring along images cut from pornographic magazines or photographs of Hitler and carefully insert them into hymnals or prayer books. Caution is important, obviously, but sometimes I can't resist causing trouble. There have been moments I found myself all alone in a grand church and managed to put a truly obscene picture in a Bible on the main pulpit. Oh, when I imagine how this will be discovered by a pious old goat in the midst of some religious platitude that makes me giddy. She chuckles and winks at me. <laughs> but I have scored points with the church ladies recently, thanks to you. I mentioned how I took into my home an underprivileged Presbyterian youth with a goal toward his spiritual development. The son of clergy, even. Oh, everyone loved to hear about my progress, educating you about the one true Catholic faith. What do you mean? They aren't clergy, I interject. Babette grins wider. You said once your parents are quite involved with their church, as elders even. Well, it is similar. The essential point remains correct. My professor maintains her relationship with religion, the way some lovers conceal affairs. She considers it a matter of paramount priority, that one place of worship never discovers the other. Besides St. Agatha's, she attends an Episcopalian church near our house, though only weekly. One afternoon, I hear Brake squeal, and upon looking out the front window, see Babette trot up the walkway. Her car is parked at an awkward angle. She bursts in the front door, chest heaving. Oh, Ross, it's those horrid Episcopalians. I agreed to give a lecture for them next week on the Church of England, but driving past just now was mortified, seeing my name on the front sideboard. Dr. Ellsworth presents? This is a catastrophe. Excuse me.
She rushes to the telephone and dials frantically. I listen in from the doorway. Indeed, I realize you wanted to advertise the event. Oh, oh no, uh, that's all right. It's only that I'm very modest, you understand, and don't like my name in large letters where everyone can see. You will remove it, won't you? I'm sorry for the bother. Yes. Thank you very much. She hangs up, shaking her head. You know, Ross, several of my Catholic acquaintances live in this part of town, and any one of them could have seen that. It's not funny, she protests as I laugh. You don't understand the trouble I must go to. <laughs> Come on, do you really think it would matter? You're a well-known professor in town. Both churches know that. You should lecture wherever you please. Are you afraid of being excommunicated or strung on the rack? Babette sighs. Oh, I sometimes wonder if I would know what to do with my life if it wasn't so complicated. She picks up her trusty package of Manischewitz crackers and brandishes them like a club. I am taking my Jewish cookies upstairs to eat in good company by myself. My professor delivers her lecture at the Episcopalian Church, but afterward quits it entirely. This represents no declining interest in religion, for her preoccupation only intensifies. She spends even more time at St. Agatha's, taking daily mass and meeting with prayer groups. Then, one Saturday morning, Babette requests I drive her to the airport for a day trip to British Columbia. When I pick her up that evening, she reveals nothing about it, only smiling mysteriously the whole way home. Soon, she makes plans to visit again for a week. Now, Ross, the timepieces are very important, my professor informs me as part of her pre-departure tutorial. She beckons me into the living room. This grandfather clock beside the piano is easiest, so we will begin here. It is brand new, purchased at the Meyer and Funk department store downtown in 1961. Once a week, you pull both chains here, like so. The weight on your right controls time, and the other hourly chimes. It doesn't matter when this is done, but I keep routine of Sunday night. She turns toward the entryway, where a small rectangular clock is mounted on the wall. Elegant dark wood surrounds its painted glass cover, and transparent areas expose the swinging pendulum. Now, this is a little older. Made in Quebec in 1845, it is quite beautiful, yes, but also more temperamental, like myself. Open the door, and through these small holes in the face, you must wind seven and a half rotations with this small key every Sunday. Do not wind it during the times of a quarter before the hour until five after the hour. Otherwise, it can bind up. Since your memory is not so adept as mine, perhaps you should write this all down. I fetch a pad of paper and take dutiful notes. At last we come to a diminutive clock fastened high on the dining room wall. Its tick is deeper than the others and resonates differently. This spectacular piece is a black forest clock, Babette crows with pride. From around 1760, the workings are entirely wooden. Can't you tell by the way it sounds? Please be extremely careful. Pull these chains and avoid the same times as with my Quebec clock, but also from a quarter after the hour to half past. Do it every evening, since this only has a 24-hour mechanism. After returning from the airport, I sit in the kitchen nook and skim through Maclean's, but can't concentrate. Faint grumbles sound above as an overhead pump circulates water through the solar panels. A synchronous ticking from all three clocks batters the silence. I turn on the kitchen radio. Obligingly, Mozart pours out. 
There's only one channel available now. Early in my residence, I switched it to monitor news reports, but absentmindedly never moved it back. Horrified, Babette cemented the dial in permanent position, slapping on thick globs of epoxy. I venture upstairs and notice her bedroom door is open. Dense perfume drifts across the threshold. I have never stepped inside unsupervised, but this time I enter, past a wall-mounted holy water dispenser. The black metal bed is unmade, a heavy comforter folded open just as she climbed out. Dust motes float in shafts of sunlight, illuminating an oversized toy tanker truck and model stuka dive bomber. On her bedside table, a framed photograph depicts the much younger Dr. Ellsworth, whose broad features smile up at me. A leather wallet lies beside it. Several twenty-dollar bills protrude. I immediately freeze, and then retreat with careful footsteps, as if every inch of red carpeting hides more traps. Checking downstairs, I find the office door locked. The library is sealed off as well, metal crossbar padlocked in position. Days later, after I pick up my professor, she radiates euphoria and can't resist tantalizing me once I carry her luggage inside. So, Ross, Babette begins, her smile sly, I have decided to become a Benedictine nun. I keep a poker face. And may soon join a convent near Nanaimo, British Columbia. In the future, I will spend a great deal of time there and would like you to watch the house while I am away. I frown. Doesn't becoming a nun require a vow of poverty? If you couldn't own property, there wouldn't be much for me to house it, would there? Babette turns away with a sniff. <laughs> we shall see about that. I forgot your skeptical nature, which spreads little but gloom upon the month of sunny days. In fact, I now feel quite unwell and must retire. Perhaps tonight I may take revenge through Scrabble. She marches upstairs, and soon Mendelssohn reverberates throughout the house. I turn to go downstairs, but something cold and damp makes me jump back. From the glass doorknob dangles a wet pair of lime-green panties. Babette always washes her undergarments by hand, then drapes them to dry on the nearest protrusion. In the basement, I pass her two extra freezers and refrigerators packed with provisions on my way to the pantry. They throb a perpetual hum that lulls me to sleep each night. I place a severed head single on my turntable. The needle bites down and electronic beats thump from speakers tucked between canned pickles, preserved bacon, and chutney tins. I recline across my small bed and look up. Across the ceiling from a hammock of twine hang bandanas and bootlaces that formerly adorned my hair. I recently gave up the mohawk as too much trouble, and now sport a Chelsea cut, shaved all around with bangs spiked forward. I laugh. This is my life, with an aspirant Benedictine nun. A nun very much prepared for the apocalypse. 